Hello everyone again. A lot of you I've already seen earlier this morning and, and yesterday, and I want to welcome you once more. Uh, this time we're meeting with Vivian Igo and Robert Nicholson, and they're going to talk about Tales from the Tower. Now, they're both former curators of the Tower since its opening in 1962. Vivian was curator from 1965 to 72, and she is an authority and a lecturer on Joyce and organized the first International James Joyce Symposium. She was chairperson of the James Joyce Institute of Ireland, 1980 to 1985, and the author of several books, including uh, The Real People in Ulysses and The James Joyce Dublin Houses. Uh, she's in conversation with Robert Nicholson, who was curator from 1978 until 2012. Uh, his book, The Ulysses Guide, established him as an authority on the location of Joyce's, uh, on the locations in Joyce's novels. And he also wrote and presented a DVD for Art Magic in 2007 called James Joyce's Dublin, The Ulysses Tour. He is a founder member of the James Joyce Cultural Centre, as well as a former chairperson of the James Joyce Institute of Ireland. And both of them are collaborating at the moment on a book, which we hope will be published in time for Bloomsday this year. Now, they're in conversation today with our chairperson, Dr. Seamus Cannon, and the secretary of the James Joyce uh, Society, the Friends of James Joyce Society, Ono Quirk. So I'll hand you over to them now. <clears throat> okay, so I'm wondering what I'm doing here. <laughs> How, how, how I ended up here, but I'll start off with Vivian. And Vivian, just could you tell us about how you started in the tower, where you came? Uh, nowadays, up to 30,000 visitors visit a year. When you started, how many visitors did you have? Just over 2,000. So there's big, been a big increase. No, I applied for a job. It, uh, an ad appeared in the Irish Times in 1965 for an, an antiquities officer. Um, the Eastern Regional Tourism Organization was looking at, so I applied and I went for the interview. And when I went to the interview, Harold Naylor, who's the Regional Tourism Manager, said to me, would you like to have a stab at Joyce? Because they'd taken over the Martello Tower. <laughs> a few people would have liked to have a stab at Joyce. <laughs> <laughs> he said, you know anything about Joyce? Well, I said, yes, I knew a bit about Joyce, but I said, in a week's time, I know everything about Joyce. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I, that's, he asked me to write um, an essay on Joyce and give it to him. But, and, as I said, he asked me, did I know anything about Joyce? Well, I did know a bit, because my mother was an avid reader. She'd read Finnegan's Wake. Now, that was well, quite a while ago, and yeah. a lot of people didn't even know about Finnegan's Wake, and she'd also read Ulysses, and there was a copy of Ulysses and all of Joyce's books in the house. So I was, and when I was a child, she brought me around to all the different places in Dublin located with Joyce, so I was quite familiar with all the streets and everything and mm. houses that she brought me around to see. So anyway, I got the job, and I started working in the Joyce Tower in 1965, on Midsummer's Day. Well, 
I thought it was a good day to start. Very good. <laughs> so when I went into the tower, it was very cold and damp. There's no telephone. There's no toilet. There's no tap. I couldn't have tea if I wanted to, so I, it was very basic. Wow. So um, there's no, no such thing as health and safety. <laughs> and you use the stairs. No I had to climb up this big iron stairs in howling wind. And sometimes nobody called into the tower and be there on my no own with no telephone or anything. And there's allegedly a most peculiar character wandering around Sandy Cove. And I had no phone, so if he came in, I don't know what would have happened. But anyway, the guards in. Um, Dorky and Dunleary. It was kind of on their beat, and they'd always call in and check and see how I was. And they'd bring me bottles of orange and chocolate. So yeah, it's pretty nice. <laughs> so they were very good, really. Yeah. They, they were probably wondering what you did to deserve to be sent to the <laughs> tower like that. <laughs> it was worse than the Tower of London, it really yeah. was. Yeah, yeah. So I might just ask Robert, was your start much different to that? Well, slightly more civilised. Um, I was appointed in 1978, I suppose, through the same medium. I saw an ad in the paper and I thought, sure, this will do me for a starter. I hadn't had a job before. And of course, you were there till 2019, of course, as well, yeah? Oh, yes. Yes, 40 years and more. Um, yeah, it was... Uh, so I went through yeah, the same process. I was interviewed and um, put in the job. And it so happened that that was the year that they built the extension on the side. And I think the, the whole plan was to have it done before the, the season started. And um, these things move on and on, and there was no sign of it being finished. And so I actually got um, taken on in head office for, the, for my first year. Gave me a chance to do the homework. So well, I wasn't asked to write an essay on Ulysses. Um, I was at least in a position to um, have written several essays by the time I eventually got to the tower. So it didn't open until the following year, in, in May 1979. Mm. And then, of course, because the whole place had been turned inside out, um, everything needed to be put back again in a new order. The, the whole, all the exhibition had been upstairs in the round room previously. And so I was restaging it down in the extension. Mm -hmm. And yes, I was happy to say they'd put in toilets just in time for me to arrive. I think the, the telephone was already there. Um, I was house trained. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you were. <laughs> sure, so was I. Um, yes, so did the, the telephone actually only went as far as the gunpowder magazine. So if I was sitting on a desk on the outside, I had one ear to what was coming out of there. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was, yeah. Slightly different and obviously a lot more to get into. Yeah, but um, by the time you were appointed, Bloomsday had really sort of taken hold, had it become uh, sort of a significant holiday at that point? Uh, no, not really. I'd say Bloomsday didn't take off till shortly after that. Um, the great thing about the time I was appointed was that the, the James Joyce centenary was just around the corner. In 1982, so it was felt that they, they needed a Joycean actually kind of permanently installed, which um, gave me a, a permanency. And I was put on the um, the, the committee for the James Joyce Centenary and, and helped to, to work in the symposium 
I suppose they felt if Vivian could do it, then I might be able to fill the same chair as well. Uh. So that got me in. But Bloomsday, no, was pretty small back then. Um, there were people who knew about it, of course, but um, very few. I think there was one, one Bloomsday, probably my second year there, around about 1980 or so. Um, I think there were 66 visitors, and it turned out that 33 of those, exactly half, um, was a school party who'd intended to go to the Maritime Museum in Dunleary. <laughs> <laughs> it happened to be closed on that day of the week, so they uh, went down and visited another local museum instead. Yeah. So the place wasn't exactly crawling with people in straw boaters or anything. Yeah, yeah. well. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it really took off after 1982. Yeah, which was when yeah, the, the yeah. big bloomsday occurred, and yeah. um, people did see people patrolling the streets in Edwardian yeah. garb. It, it was my own introduction to it as well, I have to say. Yeah, nineteen eighty-two. Yeah. They didn't go on with all that dressing up nonsense when I was there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, no, they didn't bother with toilets. A very few people came on the yeah. first bloomsday, and they were mostly Americans or, or, or Americans or Europeans. Maybe about two Irish people would have called, and that one of them would have been Professor Roger McHugh. He called every single year, but no Irish people called. Oh. Yeah, they weren't interested in Joyce, and yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned Americans there. One of your visitors, I believe, was a man called Studs Lonigan. No, he wrote books called Studs Lonigan. I see. He wrote the trilogy. It was James Farrell. I see, and, and he, was born, he was born in 1904, <clears throat> and he I came see. out with Ben Kiley. He was a friend of Ben Kiley's, and he was very interested in Joyce. He'd written about Joyce. He'd written 54 books, but he, he wrote a lot on Joyce as well. I see. And there are rumours among the society that you tried to take advantage of him. No. Au <laughs> no. <laughs> <Au> contraire. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Well, <laughs> can you elaborate, please? No, he always carried his portable typewriter around with him. And in, in those days, the iron staircase was there. So he came up and we had a chat. And when we were coming out of the tower, I locked the door, but I went down first. But he was carrying his portable typewriter under his arm. But he tripped and fell, and I broke his fall. Was it? <laughs> So he said, I saved his life. <laughs> he fell into your arms, yeah. <laughs> so he sent me nearly 54 copies of his books. <laughs> <laughs> All signed mm -hmm. with things like, tu es très gentil. And he invited me over to New York. And well, we became great friends anyway. Uh, Very good. And, and you, you, Robert, would have met some interesting uh, characters as well, I'm sure. Oh, yes, over the years. I was trying to remember how many Nobel Prize winners for literature I'd met. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they've noted you in their biographies. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sure they have. <laughs> well, it's partly because of Seamus Heaney, Seamus Heaney because um, he used to entertain his, um, <clears throat> the Nobel notables when they came to, to Dublin. Yeah. And so he'd always bring them round to the tower and then they'd go off and visit his brother-in-law and Dorkey at the... Uh-huh. Um, so so who, who are you thinking of there? Oh, uh, well, people like Derek Walcott, Nadine Gordimer, uh, um, Samuel Beckett on another occasion. Um, 
this guy called Claude Simon. I can't even <laughs> remember what he wrote, but he was <laughs> French anyway. This. Yeah. Well, uh, tell us about, about, about Beckett. You, you've, you had some interactions with Beckett, didn't you, over the years? Uh, I did. Now, when, when the museum was going to open, um, a friend of mine suggested that maybe I should write to him and ask if he would perform the opening of the extension. Um, so, of course, I wrote to him, and, of course, he said no. <laughs> and, and, of course, you, you may have seen some little card in the, in the display case, but um, he kindly sent me instead the, the tie which Joyce had worn and which um, he gave to Samuel Beckett. And so this was great fun. It was a great start to my career as collector. <laughs> yes. And then they did the same... The same winter, I went off on holiday to Paris, and I thought I'd try my luck. So I wrote and said, any chance I could meet and have a chat? So he said yes. And we uh, met for an hour or so in the, the, the cafe where the famous photo was taken. Yeah. And so we had a few things to say. And uh, then, actually, I met him again the, the following spring, because... I think this, this so impressed the, the people in the tourist office. They said, why don't you go back to Paris and meet a lot of people that Joyce knew, and this would be as a kind of warm-up for the centenary. Mm. So I had another chat with him, and he told me a few more things about this, like the, the last time he ever saw Joyce, which I don't think you see in any of the biographies. Um, Joyce was in saint Geron and Beckett had managed to work his way out of Paris and... Um, he'd, so he'd gone all the way down to saint Geron on his way to safer parts. And so he met the Joyces there. And um, then, of course, Beckett had to move on, so he was up on some kind of horse and cart and moving off. And, um, the Joyces were standing there waving at him, and Beckett was waving back. And he said, I never thought that would be the last time I'd see him. Yeah. Another interesting visitor I had was the poet John Berryman. He came into the tower with three photographers and they took a hundred photographs of him. But I was sitting at my desk reading and he came over and he said, what are you reading? I said, I'm reading a poem by Rivers Carew. So he took the book up and he went into the middle of the, the room, the domed room. And a bus tour came in. So he's there were people standing around. He started reading the poem. And when he finished, they all clapped. They thought it was part of the show. <laughs> and, and then he came over to my desk again, and he took um, some poems of Yeats, and he started to read that. And he got great applause altogether. Mm. But I had a cleaner from Glasthul, and she used to come up and clean the tower. And when a tour come in, would come in, she'd stand, and she'd put her hand on the mop, and when they were all there, she'd say, I don't know why you're all coming here. I've lived here for 60 years, and that man, Joyce, never lived in this tower. <laughs> Is that Annie? Yeah. And no matter what I said to her, I could never shut her up. <laughs> I think I had the same cleaner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No surnames, no scandal. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, not, not, not a milk lady, no. Uh, not a milk lady, no. Uh, yeah. But uh, you, there was another prominent poet who used to visit you out there as well, Vivian. Patrick Havner. Oh, Patrick Havner used to come up qu out quite a bit. He was quite familiar with the tower because he was involved in the first um, Bloomsday event. 
1954, when they went on a pilgrimage from the tower into, into the city. But he used to come out quite a bit because he, he knew the family quite well. But I always knew when he was coming up the steps, because I'd hear these steps coming up. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. He, he'd only one long, and he wasn't too healthy. And then he'd come in and he'd kind of flop down, start chatting. But he used to reminisce about the time he went to the ballet. It was a ballet on in the Abbey Theatre in 1962, Gamble, No Gamble. And John Ryan had actually done the stage setting for the ballet. And his wife, Patricia Ryan, she'd written the choreography for it. And T.P. McKenna was the, the narrator. Mm -hmm. Patrick Kavanaugh wrote the words, and T.P. McKenna narrated the words. And he often used to refer back to that period when he kind of addressed the audience from the Abbey, mm -hmm. from the Valley, Gamble, no ba Gamble, no Gamble. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, he, he was a, a, a curious fresh paddy in many, in many ways. Yeah, he often came out. Uh -huh. Yeah. <laughs> He would have been at that stage, in, in the later stages of his life, and probably didn't drink as he used to in the early days. Well, I think he always drank. Oh, did he? Yeah. <laughs> Still got up the stairs. But he used to have a bread soda or something in his pocket, and he'd take that to count, of, it was acid or something, that to counteract the alcohol or something. Uh, but he always kind of drank, yeah. Uh, and how did visitors get to the tower in the early days? Did it, was there a train station? No, they got the bus, or they, they came out on a bike. But one day, um, this young American student came out, and he climbed up the steps, and he came in, and he said, I have something to show you. And I said, well, show it to me. And so he put a knocker on, on my desk, and it was the knocker from number seven, Eccles Street. He'd whipped it off the door. <laughs> and I said, are you giving it to me? And he said, no, I'll give it to you later. He said, I want to bring it home to America to show the folks. 47 years later, he came back with the knocker. Oh. <laughs> 47 years later, and it's affixed to the door now. <laughs> In Finally, yes. Yeah, he, he knocked he, it off in the first yeah, place. He took the knocker off the door. Yeah, that, that's the door that Paddy Kavanagh unveiled, is that right? Oh, Patrick Kavanagh unveiled the door, yeah, when it was in the Bailey. And he went in and he said, I now declare this door shut. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Robert, you had uh, a number of conversations with, with Stephen, is that right? Stephen Joyce? Uh, yes. Uh, Animated conversations, I gather. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was fairly fearsome, I suppose. I first met him the time I went to Paris, and I called into his, his office, in fact. And so the first sight of him I had, that's before he grew the beard. He just had a moustache and glasses. So he was looking at me over his glasses. And he looked the, the dead spit of his grandfather. Uh, and so I was kind of speechless for a while. <laughs> <laughs> he sort of started testily asking yeah. what I was here to see him yeah. about. Uh, um, so he gave me an earful about the Joyce industry. And, um, I think it's an earful we're probably quite used to by now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, then, of course, I heard a lot more about him when the, um, the death mask was put up the sale. Mm -hmm. um, it was when 1986, I think, 1985. Uh, it was... I'd always... I'd known that the, that the plaster death mask had been in the tower at the, the time the, the place was opened, mm -hmm. and that Carol Gideon Welker had given it 
and I'd occasionally asked Michael Scott sort of whatever became of it. And, um, I sort of had an idea he had it, but I didn't really know much more than that. Um, but then eventually, he, I think actually he said his family put it on sale. It mightn't have been his decision. But uh, then, of course, the, the, the excrement hit the fan. Uh, when Stephen Joyce found out, uh, he's not at all pleased that this relic of his grandfather, which he reckoned had been given to the tower, was going to be <clears throat> put under the hammer for any rich person to go off with. Metaphorically speaking. Yes. Being put yes. on the hammer. Well, yes. Um, so he, I mean, I got this <laughs> phone call from Stephen Joyce saying, <clears throat> is the museum selling the mask? Huh. <laughs> and I said, it certainly is not. I, I thought Michael Scott had it. So I rang up Michael Scott and he said, yes, it's mine and I'm selling it. So it kind of developed from there and... Um, Stephen organised this huge campaign to find out anything he could about the, the provenance of the mask and how it was, um, how Michael Scott came, claimed to be owning it. So it just went on a long time. Uh, it was, I mean, it was embarrassing, really, because Michael Scott was the founder of the museum in many ways, and we were beholden to him, and didn't really like to make out that he was misappropriating the property, but... Mm -hmm. We had to get to the bottom of it. And yeah, it was curious, a lot of things kind of turned up out of the woodwork, which um, weren't necessarily kind of giveaways, but um, just little things in the history of the mask. Yeah. And the net result being that it is a property of the tower, is that correct? That's right, yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, it went so far as it actually, um, things were getting so stormy before the sale that Tony Ryan was friend of Michael Scott, I think, actually arranged to buy it privately for rather less than it would have gone for if it, mm -hmm. the sale had gone through. Uh, this wasn't actually good enough for Stephen. I think Tony Ryan, who ran Guinness Peace Aviation, sort of said it would be occasionally on display in Dublin and um, would be shown off in Shannon and a few other places. But this didn't really wash, so there's uh, more negotiations behind the scene um, in fact, James White turned up. James White, the, the former director of the National Gallery, he was actually a witness to the fact that Carla Gideon Velcro had said it, should, it was to go to the tower. Mm -hmm. And, of course, as Michael Scott at the time, was, this is even before the museum had opened up, so Michael Scott was, you know, he took possession of it from her. Mm -hmm. And then his, one of the first things he did was make a couple of bronze pulls one of which is on display in the tower, and mm -hmm. the other went to the Abbey Theatre. Mm -hmm. it, it may have been genetic on Stephen Joyce's part in that he inherited a disposition to argue with the Irish arts community <laughs> from his grandfather. Oh, I think so, yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, but he was... Yes, Maybe he, he had a personality disorder. As, uh, possibly, like his grandfather. <laughs> but Vivian... GPI. Yeah. <laughs> Vivian... One of the artefacts you brought to the tower was the guitar. Oh, yes. You... I got that over in Zurich from... I went over to stay with Fritz Sen, and I met his very good friend, Paul Ruggiero, and he gave me a lot of um, artefacts for the tower. He gave me a signed copy of Dubliners, which Joyce had given him and his wife as their wedding present, and he gave me 
six postcards and letters, original letters, and of course the guitar, which I brought back, and it was restored later, I think in 2012. Yeah, that would have been on your watch. Fran O'Rourke. Oh yes, there's the yeah. man who arranged it. Yeah. And copies of the CDs for and But well, they, they were played, all freely, the, all played. those gifts were freely given. Yeah, but yeah. Fran um, got the guitar stored up in Collins' barracks and he actually has a great singing voice and he, he played the guitar and gave concerts and everything. And he has a CD. John What's Feely that? did the playing. Did, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Uh -huh. Do you like to take a bow, Fran? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I think the guitar made a trip in the last 12 months also. Seamus, is that right? Uh, oh, that's right. We were, um, it was uh, Bloomsday last year, I think, was it, Andrew Bask? Yeah, yeah. And uh, we, you were involved in that, Fran. You might tell us. Yeah, what? well, um, I mean, you want me to tell you a little bit about the guitar, just what last Bloomsday? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I was going to say, just with regard to last Bloomsday, um, I got a call early in the morning <laughs> from, from uh, Falcha. Fal uh, Falcha, who have been responsible for managing the guitar, um, a lady called uh, Mary McAuliffe asked me, he said, where's the uh, case for the guitar? And that's what I want to ask Robert. Where did the case go? The one that I gave you uh, some years ago. Disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ask me. Ask <laughs> Seamus. Um, I had. To, well, I kept it carefully in the in, in the in kitchen. The yes. Yeah, yeah. I remember seeing it in the kitchen. But anyway, the, the case had had gone and had absconded. But um, I, Andrew Basquill, our colleague, um, is a musician himself. So I contacted Andrew about eight fifteen in the morning. He scuttled up, picked up his picked up his uh, guitar case out to the tower so he's pleased to be able to say that Joyce's guitar traveled in his guitar case mm -hmm. over to or a smoke run exactly yeah and yeah tell us a little bit about the um uh, about the guitar then yourself well um i was in zurich uh, at the foundation and i was back away and there was a visit from his name professor from geneva who was on the Committee of the foundation, he said, Oh, he says, you, you have an interest in Joyce's music song. I said, Yeah, he said, I'm dealing with the Sarah's episode next week in Geneva. Would you come over and sing a few songs for my students? So I said, Yeah, I'd love to. So he borrowed a guitar from a luthier worth about 800 euro, um, who didn't take his name, didn't ask for a deposit. So I did my thing with the, the, the students and brought him back. So he told me, this, Okay, well, let's, let's give a little. You know, give him a few songs and he explained, ah, and he went to his office, he took out a book, and he opened it on the page with that one and only wonderful photograph of Joyce. He said, ah, I'm actually restoring the guitar just like it at the moment. Do you want to see it? So I said, yeah. Uh, and then, then I decided that I'd do my best to have Joyce's guitar repaired because it was in fierce condition. It was somebody had used there, somebody wrote that, remember, polyphila. Yes. Somebody had used polyphila. <laughs> <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, after a few phone calls, um, the question from Paul Jarvis was, well, will this cost us anything? And I said, no, right, do it. Pat Wallace is a friend of mine, my brother, so he contacted um, Collins Barracks, and they gave facilities, so, um, what's his name? Uh, Gary Southwell. Gary Southwell, who makes guitars for Paul Simon and Sting, and he worked on it for three days and restored it. 
So we had not um, concerts in Human House. In fact, if you Google just guitar and Lass of Ockham, you'll see. Um, uh, I was recovering from pneumonia, but Lass of Ockham were there with Joyce and guitar. Uh, in any case, then in fact, there's also people with Paul Muldoon, Joyce Carr's uh, an evening with Paul Muldoon, John Feely, and myself. I should mention John Feely was the guitarist. Yeah. Um, but the guitars are going to tune the pegs, you see, the two show guitar, the pegs and the holes just didn't match. So the next day it wouldn't behave at all. Now, so, we, so then we wanted to let's see, can we do another repair model? And uh, Wallace had retired, and the money charged the conservation department in Collins Park said that guitar should never be touched. It should be still in the case with the polyfilla and the, um, and, and the rusty strings. Actually, as I was coming back from that meeting with him, when he finally agreed that we could do something with it, I was just got off a bus and the phone rings. He says, Hello, uh, can I speak with uh, Mr. O'Rourke? Yes, uh, this is Stephen Joyce. Uh, so I had gotten a 45 minute phone call with him in which he thanked me for restoring his uh, grandfather's guitar. Now that took about two minutes and then he started giving out about Alan Shatter for me. Minister of Defence for naming uh, one of his, uh, one of the, the, uh, the native vessels um, with the James Joyce. My, father, my grandfather was a peaceful man. And then he started giving out all kinds of other things, etc. Et et and I had another phone call from him. Following week when I said something. Anyway, it, the problem is that we couldn't go near the guitar, no change could be materially made. And after all kinds of things, could be insured, but it was in transport to um, somebody to repair it. But it wouldn't be insured while the thing was being repaired, because the assumption was if somebody, if the luthier damages being repaired. So that wasn't satisfactory, that was acceptable to Fort Ireland. Eventually, in Porto, I was visiting a guitar shop, explaining my problem, and the oh, what you need are Whitner pegs, uh, these are for ancient instruments. You ram the peg in, it stays in place, and on the inside there's a mechanism which allows you to tune the string. Uh, so that was the solution. So in fact, last June was the first time we used those uh, when we used it up in Orson for yeah. And, and uh, I mean, you might have heard, if you listen back, there's a piece on Sunday mornings, Sunday Saturday, which I mentioned to uh, Liam, yeah. which I thanked the uh, friends of the Tower for generously donating 500 euro. Paul um, Muldoon gave me a thousand sterling, and Peter Callis, most a generous check, and uh, Seamus Heaney, after the Paul Muldoon evening, they said, How did you ask the image? That's on the back of the actually offered. But uh, so that was the that was the year. Uh, anyway, there are hopefully um, hopefully we get another uh, out in this special year. And in fact, it's interestingly, um, John and I were in. Um, I hope I'm not going on too long. Well, it's a bit of an odyssey, all right. That <laughs> has had. We were invited to Shanghai some years ago on Wednesday, and um, the publisher uh, saw the CD and asked if they would uh, if they could give it as a freebie along with the new edition. Um, and I'll show you afterwards this most beautiful edition of Ulysses that anyone has ever seen. Um, and it has a special booklet with all the, the text in Chinese and a copy of the CD. 
Uh, maybe that's the, the yeah. nice gift of the tower. Oh, thank you, Fran. Thank you, thank you Fran. Yeah. There, there is a sort of something we also got remarkable. The piano. Pardon me? We oh, yeah. The but piano. I just, and, and Frank is sort of singing, or Fran singing uh, The Last of Autumn while suffering from pneumonia. There's something <laughs> Michael Fury <laughs> would have been pleased with. Yes. yes. Very yeah. apt. Yeah. yeah. So, so I talk about the piano then. Where did that, or how did that come to the I got a letter, um, a relation of Joyce's in London had the piano. Nelly I was Joyce. originally from Trieste. Mm -hmm. So when I was there, needless to say, the piano couldn't be carried up the stairs into the narrow mm -hmm. doorway. I had to wait till the place was extended when Robert was there. So yeah. it was put into storage. And Robert, you could take it up from there. Yes. Uh, well, it, it finally arrived once the extension was built. Mm -hmm. We put it in the gunpowder magazine. It, um, I think there was even a little bit of playing on it, but it wasn't a uh, wasn't a great place for it to be. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a bit of salt air and um, the rest. So, as uh, when the the time came to move to the Dublin Writers Museum, there was actually. <laughs> um, I discovered this plot uh, to remove all the items from the Joyce Tower and move them to the Dublin Writers Museum. Um, which, so I, <coughs> I insisted that we had to write to everybody who'd given things, oh. <coughs> which I'm afraid did not endear me to the management. I think they, um, they felt they owned all this stuff and could do with it what they liked. But in the end, the, the two things we did move were the, the big Basil Blackshaw portrait, which was going to be de trop anyway in the round room, which was the only room which would fit it, and the piano, which would be um, in a better environment and also probably in a, well, technically a domestic environment as opposed to sitting in an old gun emplacement. Mm -hmm. um, so it looked more appropriate there. Mm -hmm. And in new course, um, there was somebody who came forward and arranged to restore it, and so it was put back in playable condition. Mm -hmm. And some some of the artifacts survived by less conventional means than others. And the panther, I was thinking of. <laughs> yes, I don't know if you'd call it an artifact. It was, um, yeah, there was a guy called um, Kieran Daly who used to come out every Bloomsday faithfully, sort of from the beginning. Um, <laughs> Very um, engaging person. Um, he'd always put on, he was one of the first people to wear the boater on the stripy blazer, and he'd turn up at opening time on Bloomsday, and he and his friends would um, reenact a bit of the first chapter. And um, I think somebody, one of them arrived with three pints of milk one morning just to represent the milk woman. <laughs> um, but eventually, in, in 1987, I think it was, he turned up and said, I've got the Black Panther. And, he had this thing under his arm. Uh, he was, um, his business was actually running gift shops, and this was the kind of gift where he had. Um, it's apparently Italian ceramic and um, worth quite a few Bitcoin or whatever you pay for in these days. And I think, now I'm assuming rather it was a gift to the tower, but he kind of left it there while he went drinking for the day and never came back. Um, so it ended up in the collection. Yeah. And when it came to the 
putting the round room back together the way it was in Joyce's time. I felt it wouldn't be too solemn about this, so I parked the panther in the fireplace. Mm -hmm. And it has evoked a lot of imaginary explorations of the room ever since. Yes, yeah, so I think it engages especially the young people who visit the tower, the children, the, the, it's the artefact that engages them the most in the tower and the oh, story. There you are, you have to have something. I know my first visit to the tower, I think I was about eight years old and it was newly opened as a museum. And I think the, the two things I remember from that visit were one, the, the spooky green death mask. And the other one was gas from a burner, which contained some very interesting language, which I wasn't used to hearing in public at all. Indeed. And so these kind of stuck in my mind for another uh, um, sort of 15 years or so till I came back to <laughs> take possession of them. I see. Yeah, Vivian, my recollection of the 60s is very faint, but... Um, <laughs> so is mine. Was <laughs> 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 it? My rec of the 70s, Joyce in my family would have been a pariah that we wouldn't have been allowed to talk about him. Um, did you experience that? My family was different to your family. Yes. <laughs> Thank <laughs> no, God. But in the 1970s, I think things began to change because Noelle Cleary, she'd, she's, she had a language centre in Wilton Place and she used to have a Joyce summer school and people like Fritz and Clive Hart they all used to lecture at the summer school. So things had begin, were beginning to change in the 1970s. Though after um, the film was released uh, of Ulysses, there were a lot of derogatory letters to the Irish Times mm. about you know, people writing in, you know, a Catholic country showing this film and we should be ashamed of ourselves. And there's some really Joyce letters now in the Irish Times. <laughs> Probably worth investigating. I've investigated um, those, yeah. Yeah. Mm. And you were also responsible in, in 1967, I think, the first symposium for a lady called Margaret Solomons giving a lecture called The Phallic Tree in Finnegan's Wake. But sure, I wouldn't have understood what that was at all. <laughs> <laughs> Still don't. But, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, between yourself and, uh, no, and Robert, uh, with gas from a burner, you're... Fritz, um, he's said to me, Vivian, when we he started the Joyce, first James Joyce Symposium in 1967, he said we didn't know what we were about to unleash. You know, there's been so many, 28 S Joyce Symposiums mm -hmm. after that date, mm -hmm. all over the world. Mm -hmm. And it was Fritz, Clive Hart and Tom Staley and myself who organised the first symposium and it was really after that, it just took off. Oh, yes, a bit like Bloomsday, which has become a kind of um, monstrous thing from its humble beginnings. But uh, you, you were saying as well on a previous occasion, Vivian, that when you studied English in UCD, that you didn't study Joyce. Joyce's name was never mentioned. Mm -hmm. We did Milton and Swift and Chaucer and people like that, but Joyce never, his name wasn't mentioned. Although Roger McHugh, he lectured us and Lorna Reynolds was also, she was also interested in Joyce, she lectured, and Dr. Eileen McCarville. Mm -hmm. They were kind of interested in Joyce. And certainly the librarian was familiar with Joyce. 
Now, one day when I was coming out of the Joyce Tower, 1965, I was delighted to have a job at six pounds a week. <laughs> and I was coming out, I was walking around by the 40 foot, and I met somebody from UCD, an academic. And she looked at me straight between the eyes and she said, Miss Feel, you should be utterly ashamed of yourself. You are working in a sewage museum. <laughs> I'm always there to say only glory be to God, <laughs> as Gogarty would say. <laughs> yeah, Lida yeah. and the swans. Yeah, indeed. Indeed, yeah. Mm. Um, but uh, Robert, I know I just mentioned the Joyce Symposium has been mentioned there. There's a famous one in Monte, Monte Carlo, wasn't it? Monaco, yeah. uh, where Stephen took issue with. Um, um, the Maddox book on Nora, but you, you had an exchange with him as well mm -hmm. about that. Um, yes, well, unfortunately, um, well, I don't know whether the fortune came in, but um, Matthew and, and their successors, Mandarin, um, who published my book, launched it at the Tower in 1988. So, and they immediately decided the Tower was a great place to have a, a launch every year. So um, within a couple of years of that, um, Brenda Maddox's book was published. Now, I had reservations about uh, the book myself. I wasn't too comfortable, but um, they decided that the, the paperback would be among the offerings that year. So they launched it there. So. Um, and Stephen got on to me afterwards and said it had been an act of hostility. <laughs> he didn't take to it kindly. I know when he visited the... One occasion he visited the tower. This is Before that time, it was when the hardback was out and it was sitting up on the bookshelf. <laughs> um, so he immediately tried to um, turn it back to front. And so instead of having a picture of Nora, there was a picture of Brenda Maddox looking at him, so he didn't know which way to turn it. <laughs> I see. Um, I felt it was going into personal areas which you didn't really need to know about. Um, that was my impression when I read it. And of course, uh, at that, uh, in Monaco, Stephen created quite a, a rumpus um, when, just after Brenda Maddox's uh, presentation. Uh, Fritz Sen is sitting in the front row there and oh, sort yes. of looking, <laughs> looking nonplussed. But uh, yeah, he really objected very, very strongly to it. Oh, yes. I know she made an implication about Nora, which she um, said that possibly she was some kind of um, part-time prostitute um, because she was working on Leinster Street, which, um, as we know from the works of another Irish artist, author was frequented by members of the prostitute class. Uh, the, the author that uh, used this phrase was Flann O'Brien in Not Swim Two Birds. Mm -hmm. I don't think you can necessarily call upon that as an authority for implying that um, Nora was indeed, indeed, yeah. going off with people. Uh -huh. yeah. Uh -huh. People should feel free to, if there's a question of course, you don't, don't hesitate to, to, to um, ask. Um, just on, uh, you're, you're, you, you met lots of people, Vivian, during your, the, the early Joycean's people who would... Pioneers. Yes, the pioneers, yeah. Mm, I met them all. I met all the translators. Mm -hmm. Elman, did Elman come to the tower? He did. Yeah. 
and there's actually somebody coming over later on in March who's writing a biography on Elma. <laughs> you know. <laughs> but there was a, a well-known, Jerry O'Flaherty was an early Joycean and he gave Elman a lot of help with his work and also Dr. Crossman over in America. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, met, I met, I was kind of in the right place at the right time and I met all the early Joycians. But Elman gave an injunction to Joycians to believe nothing they heard in Dub Dublin, I believe. That's anything they heard in Dublin was not to be trusted. I, was it not Hugh Kenner who talked about the Dublin fact? I see. And I think he, he said that Elman had been taken in by a few people. Who'd, um, I'll, st I'll stand corrected. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, the Dublin fact. I, I hadn't heard this. An interesting concept. Yeah. Yes, I'm trying to remember the example he gave of it. I think there was some guy Hugh Kenner met who claimed to have known Blazes Boylan. <laughs> and <laughs> also that there was some man who was the original of Leopold Bloom. Yeah. And he, <coughs> he claimed to have been witness to some exchange between... <coughs> Um, the pseudo Bloom and the pseudo Blazers Boylan. And <laughs> so Hugh Kenner got to be very wary of things he was actually told in Dublin. I see, yeah. I think there's an example of the Dublin fact in the Molly Museum, where there's a, a spoken recollection of somebody who remembers listening to Joyce. Uh, he was a lovely old man singing songs at the end of the street all the time. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds quite likely. Joyce or his father. Uh, well, the, it's a Dublin fact, so I'm not sure. <laughs> oh, yes, I remember, yes, there was um, Brian Lawler, the, the artist, was, I think, doing a, um, a painting or a drawing of Bloom's house in Eccles Street at one stage. And some guy came up to him and said, oh, you're drawing Bloom's house, I see. And, uh, so... Um, Brian Lawler was very impressed that somebody knew what the house was. Um, the guy went on and said, oh, yes, sure, I remember old Bloom and his mother, Mrs. Bloom, a lady of the old school. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and speaking of drawn, Vivian, the BBC had a, an art competition, did they? Paintings. That, uh, uh, when? Oh, a long time ago. Um, Before my time. I think, I think you mentioned, I was asking you about artists. No, there was, uh, there was an Australian artist, um, Val Harford, and she had an art exhibition in the Joyce Tower in 1965. We had it down in the uh, gunpowder room, her paintings all around. That was the first art, art exhibition there. There wasn't a terrible lot of space there, you know. Like, when I was there, most of the, all the exhibits were up on the, the ground. On the so ground room. Room. Yeah, yeah. 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 And there's still room, for, and the bookcase was half empty. They weren't half. Well, we didn't have the half case. the amount of material as when Robert came along. Oh yes, well, I mean, books by Joyce just sort of multiplied exponentially. But then we were offered the best collection of Joyce in the world by an American man from Baltimore, George Linewall. He'd first editions. He had the best collection, and he offered it to the Joyce Tower if they could find somewhere to store it. Or, uh, and there was a plan to buy Michael Scott's house, which was for sale for £30,000. But they couldn't raise the money, Board Fulcher or the government or anybody. And this great, he held on to the collection for two years. 
and eventually he sold the collection to the Southern Methodist University in America for a huge sum and we could have got it for nothing. So, I mean, that was a bitter pill to swallow when you lose the best collection mm-hmm. of Joyce in the world, first editions. And yeah. It was really a terrible loss to the nation. Mm-hmm. I felt very disillusioned. Did you have that experience, Robert, that sort of disheartening lack of official support? Um, I suppose I, it sort of went up and down over the years and I had to wrestle with the business of being run by the tourism organisation who um, weren't necessarily all Joycians. Um, I don't think I had anything quite like Vivian's experience in that. But, um, there was what was referred to as the commercial imperative which uh, kicked in at a certain, certain point. Mm-hmm. Um, there were more interested in making sure the place paid its way and paid it well. Mm-hmm. And Vivian, do you think that the loss of that collection was that down to an antipathy to Joyce or was it a lack of money? I'd or? say it was a lack of money. It's definitely a lack of money. And nowadays, if something like that happened, private support would be sought or I presume was that not an option in those days? Well, I did try to raise money, but... I didn't raise enough I see. to buy Michael Scott's house. Hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. to buy gear. Yeah, so I sent all the money back then. You would have made a tidy profit had you managed to buy it. I know. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. And uh, my understanding is that the copy of Ulysses in the tower was bought with money raised privately, Robert, am I correct? Um, well, sort of. It was... Um, it was offered to us for the then princely sum of £1,000. And <clears throat> so I put this to the Eastern Region Tourism, the people I worked for. And they went to the Regional Tourism Trust, which was some kind of body they were, uh, who helped fund them for various things. So the Trust came up with the, the money to supply it. Actually, no, they, the Trust seemed to have got it directly from Carol's, the cigarette people. <laughs> so the <laughs> tainted money. We should return uh, it, I suppose, yeah, is the thing to do there. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Actually, I think the guy who sold it to us had got the money to buy it in the first place from selling something stronger than tobacco. <laughs> uh-huh. And Throwaway's picture, that I believe, is one of only three... Uh, yes, so so I believe. Um, yeah, a man came up and he, he said he'd had this, he got this picture. He and his son were looking in a, an antique shop window in Battersea, and they saw this photograph of a horse and they were saying, mm, "That's a fine-looking picture," and I like the way the, the you know the bridle shows up on it, and this and that and the other thing. And then they looked down at the name of the horse, and suddenly light bulbs went on on their heads. They said, "We have got to get this thing." So they. And they went in and bought Throwaway, which they visited the tower and felt it would be a great place to have it. Mm. So, yeah, duly, I went to the Newmarket Horse Museum, which gave me a lot of Throwaway's background. And then much, much more recently, I think another copy of the same photograph came up for auction somewhere. And 
Yeah, that was where I got the information that there were only three copies of the photo made. One was for the, um, the owner, one was for the trainer, and one was for the jockey. Mm -hmm. So I don't know which one, one we trainer, had. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It might have got a, a rough ride along the way. <laughs> there's a few chips out of the frame. And there's no truth in the rumour that there was a winning docket for five euro each way, far <laughs> away hidden in the frame? <laughs> Not that I noticed. I he did actually have to reframe it when he got it because the, the, um, the glass cracked on the in transit. The dark horse. It was a dark horse. <laughs> uh, oddly enough, I was on duty in the tower one Saturday when this chap came in and he said, uh, he and two, two guys, brothers, came in, what does he throw away? What does he throw away? So I brought him in to show the picture of throwaway, and he told me this story that, that you've recounted there. Yes. He, in fact, uh, he and his brother were the people who actually sent it to, to the tower. They, it seems that this chap was involved in some fundraiser, involved in Labour Party politics in London. Ken Livingstone was running for the mayor position in London. They were going to a fundraiser. Somebody spotted it in a, in a second-hand shop window or... Uh, and uh, on the way to the to the concert, uh, they arranged to pick it up, contacted the tower yourself, spoke to yep. Robert, and uh, then when they shipped it, it didn't arrive. This is the story he's telling me. I remember it that. Got, no, got yeah. lost in, uh, in on British Rail. It ended up in Coventry um, for several months. They eventually tracked it down and got it, got it, got it to you. But uh, yeah, yeah, interesting. Chappie was very anxious to be photographed. Oh, yeah, Goulding was the name, I think. And I think it might have been his father, because I seem to remember Dermot Goulding died at some point. But, yeah. And he'd said he and his son were looking in the, mm -hmm. the shop window. Yeah. So. But, yeah. Oh, but, uh, so, Vivian, I'm going off on a totally different tangent here. <laughs> uh, when the film was made in 1967 of Ulysses, the tower was used. 1966, yeah. 66. And... Did you observe to make sure everything was...? Well, I was kind of helping round. I see. And um, everything had to be moved out, and the place had to be painted inside. It had to be recreated as it was in 1904. And um, it was a lot of work, but it was great fun. And uh, T.P. McKenna and Morris Reeves, he was one of the uh, actors. He played Stephen, Stephen yeah. and T.P. McKenna played Mulligan. And we saw the film here yesterday. Um, it seemed it was good weather. On the day they actually shot, it was very good weather, and there was shaving cream blowing all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> but afterwards, it took a few days to um, clear out the place. It was just left as it was, and I was sitting there, Somebody came up and they looked around, they saw the bed there and said to me, do you live here? <laughs> <laughs> I see. So funny things like that happened. And then you, a few months later, Morris Reeves, who played Stephen, he came in dripping wet and he told me he fell into the sea. But I said, I can't dry you, I don't have any towels here. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Not a good place to be. Uh -huh. like, there's all sorts of... There's always something funny happening out there. Yeah, I had to go through the, the similar experience in 2004 for the, uh, the next incarnation of Ulysses on film. Sean Walsh was filming Bloom there. And they used the interior of the Sandy Cove Tower, but they used the 
exterior of the one on Dorky Island because there was so much modern clutter in the way. See? Uh-huh. Yeah, because... Uh, Obviously, the surroundings have changed enormously since. Oh, yes. <clears throat> but it was great anyway. They had um, catering facilities, facilities, so I was able to have a good feed. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, well, that didn't bring any port for you. <laughs> so, much, so much for high yeah. art. In fact, the, the chap who played um, uh, Rudy in the film still lives in Dunleary, I think. Isn't that Rudy? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yes. Uh -huh. It's related to the casting people. Uh, uh, the, the Moiselle is the surname. Yes. We saw a Moiselle grave in Dean's Grange. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. yeah you think you're right, Robert. The, the mother, oh. his mother. Oh, that was the cast. Case, oh, yes. Yeah, yeah cast. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, or uh, apparently he was frequently absent from school. His mother didn't <laughs> cast him. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And I, I got a free ticket um, to see the film over in London. John Brain, who wrote Room at the Top, he called into the tower and he was kind of very interested in Joyce. And he said, Don't, Vivian, don't write your first novel before you're 40. I see. <laughs> but he was a librarian from Bingley mm -hmm. and um, he was kind of interested in Joyce and the film and everything. So he sent me a ticket mm -hmm. to see it over in London. Uh, did people ever look to stay in the tower? Want to stay there? Yeah. It wasn't an Airbnb. <laughs> <laughs> it was for Joyce. <laughs> so it was. I think I remember people asking if they could. I actually had to do so myself. Those, oh, um, one bank holiday weekend, the back shutter jammed oh. and <laughs> couldn't get it down. So obviously a security problem here. So I got in a sleeping bag and spent the night in the tower. <laughs> it was pretty spooky. Uh, <laughs> I think at Bank Holiday, you couldn't get the men out to fix it. Oh, and when they did come and fix it, in fact, it was very simple. They just put a screwdriver at the edge and wiggled it a bit and cleaned <laughs> it up. And I could have done that myself. <laughs> yeah, but... It would be too damp anyway. It was, I used to sit sometimes there with an umbrella and Wellington boots. Inside. Because there's water coming into the roof. <laughs> and then it had to close in 1970. <laughs> it was just so damp. The walls were always streaming with water. Yeah. You know, it was terribly damp. So I met Tom Keating, who um, <coughs> funded the restoration at that point. Oh, yeah, Tom He Keating. said the walls were like a big reservoir. They just trapped so much water in them. And um, when they drilled into them at the bottom, these gallons of water came jetting out. Yeah. And away. It's terrible. Trapped yeah. inside the walls. Unbelievable. And speaking of drilling into the walls, the tunnel that connects the museum to the magazine. Yes. Was that a huge Yes, it was. Job. Um, that's really what, um, the reason why I had to spend a year in head office, um, because it, was, it just took so long to, to get through that wall. And when they cut into it, they found rubble inside. So obviously the, the rubble was in danger of all coming down them. Yeah. So it did take a long time to cut that um, simple connection between the, the outside and the inside. Mm. Yeah, a formidable obstacle, all right, I suppose. Yeah. Mm. So can I invite questions from the, uh, Fran? Yeah, sure. I know that at least one wedding took place there, and I think you were probably, probably during your time, Robert, I think you just closed your eyes to the, to the chapel. Oh. Were there any other weddings that took place in, 
I have a feeling there was a, another one. I mean, it was fairly simple. It wasn't a kind of, um, they just arranged for a certain number of people to be up there and for the vows to be read. And I said, um, rather than go to the, the tourist board who would make a big hoo-ha and <laughs> want them to pay insurance and goodness knows what else, I said, it's um, your own business what you say to each other when you go up to the top <laughs> of the tower <laughs> and who you bring with you. So. And they, they, they did that, and mm -hmm. it all went off well. And there was at least one proposal on top of the tower. We were aware of that, yeah. So the, the answer is quite obvious, yeah. <laughs> we've, we've had a few of those, yeah. Um, not that I'm aware of. <laughs> I was always told this is going to happen. Uh -huh. Seamus has a story of Joyce and possibly Gogarty having to sleep in the garden. Oh, that, that's the story that Gogarty tells in uh, It Isn't This Time of Year at All, where they had uh, apparently been... You can't believe everything that Gogarty wrote, because <laughs> no. he seems to indicate that Joyce stayed there much longer than uh, he clearly did, but uh, they, were, they were drinking up in a pub called The Arches, close by, which Tom Fitzgerald sort of uh, really wanted <laughs> <laughs> to, to mean Fitzgerald's. Um, but uh, the, 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 and the proprietor's mother had died, so they were uh, drinking at the mother's wake, and they drank so much that by the time when they got back down to the tower, they felt that they couldn't uh, negotiate the rather rickety ladder up to the up to the door of the time. So they slept uh, in the potato patch uh, down uh, down below in adjacent drills. Uh, exercise and male bonding, I suppose. Yes, and Gogarty said it was much drier than its occupants. So, anybody else have a comment to make, a question to ask? Just something you mentioned about Dundee actors. There are two of the actresses still living in Dundee. Claire Rowland, who was one of the girls who lived on Royal Mountain, and Maura, I can't remember Maura, the second one. Maura Hastings, was it? Uh, no, not Maura Hastings, no. no I, I just, it was one of the, one of the younger women as well. Did you Barney Grania met possibly. Marisol and Hazel Delacour. Yeah. That was Maura Hastings. Yes. Mm. Yeah, she also worked as one of the original volunteers in the tower back in um, the early 1960s. Okay. I talked to her about the death mask. Uh. James, what's the question? Uh, Thomas has a question. Thomas um, about the knock on the digging, what was going on in Echo Street. I heard Chris, Chris Glenmore tell me a story about how he felt he by far turned up there uh, and they went, they were lowering themselves into the area. I think only one of them did just to protect yeah, This is at, at 7 Echo Street? Yeah, yeah. One of them lowered himself down and the other managed to get him back out again. They confirmed it. <coughs> Oh, yes. Uh, 
I didn't, no. I think he was before my time. I think I sort of came close to meeting him on one or two occasions, but um, didn't actually know. Um, Those photographs were exhibited in the National Museum in the last couple of months. Yeah, the Du Bois photographs that he came. Yes, he was the one who did the blackboard in the municipal gallery, and then I think somebody came along and wiped it, just <laughs> spite him. Yes. Um, not to my knowledge, I think they've always um, kept it to themselves. Um, I think probably it was it, it was actually I think Nora rather than Stephen who. Was it Nora? Yes, because it would have been. Um, I know, you hear about it occasionally. But, <laughs> but uh, it would be wonderful to get some more stuff, you know. Uh, yes, I think it's probably I mean, it's the sort of thing that Molly might be able to take on. Yeah. Um, the, the problem with the, the tower was always size. That, um, mm -hmm. that was, I suppose, one of the problems. The other is actually yeah. just sort of funding and um, proper museum conditions, which is something I worked for for a long time but, and didn't quite manage. Yeah, we're hoping that we'll be able to accomplish um, some development in that field. Oh yes, we were entered in the museum standard scheme and I had to do an awful lot of paperwork. And, um, I went off and did a, a diploma simply so I could be a qualified person on the job. <laughs> Ultimately, I think we, we ran slap bang into the depression and, yeah. uh -huh. and that kind of killed a lot of things you might have done otherwise. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're coming towards the end now, but rather appropriately, we've forgotten to mention the key. Because the key, just to give an example of running a museum when you were curators, you were required to lock the door every night mm. and there's a, a big key there's a big door on, on the <clears throat> did you have to use the big key that's in the, the case now well not that key but I had another big key the, the big key was always in the case but I had another another quite a big key to I, see. Lock. Oh, yes. I had a big heavy door to lock I used that one as well yeah. just, uh, at least I didn't have to go in and out through that door every day yeah. But yes, it's not quite the same size as the one on the case. I see. Mm -hmm. Still fairly ponderous. 
Mm. Okay, there's a question. I mean, a friend doing marvelous job. But when will you be able to, uh, you know, sell books, postcards, and CDs? CDs. Well, I, I had I had hoped that. Uh, well, we had hoped. I mean, we're, we've been in negotiations with the Nairatan County Council, and together we had hoped that we'd be able to sign off on an agreement, possibly uh, tomorrow, just because it's such an appropriate date. But uh, what's happening really is this: that a management company is being formed. Um, and the management company will be responsible for the, for the tower. Um, the OPW, and Dave, you can correct me if I make an error in this, but um, the OPW is the owner, really, of the tower. Um, it's leased at the moment to Falcha. Falcha are happy to surrender the lease. They don't manage buildings. It's just So the OPW is transferring the lease to Donair Rathdown County Council, which will then license a management company to run it, and the F... Friends of Joyce Tower will nominate people to that, as will Dunleary Rathdown County Council. And that company then will be grant-aided by Dunleary Rathdown uh, to, to, to manage the tower. So that's, that development is imminent, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm pleased to be able to say that. But just uh, there's one point I just wanted to put to, put to, to Vivian before we finish. That is, you, you did have a distinguished visitor you haven't mentioned. Giorgio turned up. At one. In 1967, he called out to the tower. Yeah. yeah. What, what's your recollection of that, of meeting him, and what? It was a, on a Bloomsday tour, and um, it was part of the symposium, and all the group came out to the tower. And I just remember when he came into the tower, he, he kind of looked around quite bewildered and amazed. Can <laughs> <laughs> imagine. And, uh, was he a pleasant fellow to... to he was. Oh, yeah, he's pleasant enough. Yeah. yeah uh -huh. He's kind of more pleasant than Stephen. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, uh -huh. yeah, poor old Stephen got a bad He's a nice wife. He's married to, um, she was so. a, an ophthalmic optician. And his wife, Asta, was a very pleasant woman. Yeah. She was German. Yeah. Was this a, a second wife? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, I didn't yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. So, anybody else? Any questions? Anything you want to <coughs> put? Yeah? Do you have any funny stories about 2004, about the big centenary in 2004? Any funny stories of the big centenary celebrations back in 2004? Uh, I don't remember if there were any funny stories. It was certainly a very busy time. Um, I can't think of anything very specific. I was just <laughs> working away hard. Mm -hmm. Other people's enjoyment was just work to you. <laughs> well, yes, well, I must say, I enjoyed making people, in, well, helping people to enjoy themselves. Um, Do you look back on it as, a, as an enjoyable period for both of you to have worked there? Yeah, well, you kind of met a lot of interesting yes. people. Like, if you're working in a bank, you don't really... <laughs> you never know who was going to come in. Owen used to work in a bank. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm nearly recovered. Yes. <laughs> well, you kind of retired early, didn't you? I did. I did. <laughs> <laughs> After 30 years, isn't that early? <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. It gave you a great sense of identity, I must say. Mm -hmm. yeah. It was great to be able to say, well, I'm courageous with the Joyce Tower, which is, um, you don't run into those every day. Indeed. Okay. Anybody else? Yeah.
so lucky to have it. And thank you so much for this extremely entertaining Thank you. Well, just to, 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 to finish up then, to let you know that Vivian and, and Robert are, are writing uh, at the moment, and uh, we hope to publish the book. The intention would be to, to publish it for Bloomsday this year. Um, that's our, our aspiration. Um, so, but certainly, you can see from what we've been hearing, it's going to be interesting anecdote. A little bit light, but it'll be very informative. And it's no an opportunity bridged. for Friends of Joyce Tower to, to pay tribute to Vivian and Robert for the work they've done for so many years. And uh, that was certainly to the forefront of our minds when, uh, when the idea was, was first mooted. Um, they've done a great deal, very important to us all, and we've all benefited from the pioneering work they did, and we're anxious to acknowledge that. And we're looking forward very much. And Vivian tells me she has lots of original photographs, I tell you, that haven't been published before, so that'll be an added, uh, an, an added bonus. So thank you to our speakers, to Robert, to Vivian, to Owen, and um, looking forward to seeing many of you, I hope, at our concert tonight, uh, where uh, we, we, keep, we say sort of, uh, in low voice, that it's it's a world premiere. I'm not just quite a world premiere, but it's certainly an Irish premiere, anyway. Thank you so much.